right, welcome back. Michael Thompson is joining us here, but you are not the most important person in this studio at the moment. Because Cappy's out, you're in, but Paul White, wrestling legend, is here. You played Papa Shot with him. Mm -hmm. You barely beat him. How could you have barely beat him? You were an NBA player. True. He's a giant of a man. True. But you should have beaten him by more playing Papa Shot. No, Shatter. not really, because you got to remember, Paul White didn't start off as a wrestler. He started off as a basketball player at Wichita State. That's and fair. He, and he was a man with a good shooting touch. But and it's been a minute is what I So what? Say. It's like riding a bike. When's the last time you rode a bike? It doesn't matter. Once you can shoot, you can always shoot. And that's what Paul White showed that no matter how long it's been since he's played, he still has that shooting touch. My gosh, do I love this man. Mm. I want to take him everywhere with me. He <laughs> makes me feel so good about me. It's like, it's like you know, he's like, thank you, Michael. Thank yeah. you very much. I I, yes, I do have a shooting touch. Yes, I do. Think it was that. nice. Once you went one-handed, it was very well, impressive. Well, the funny thing is, is my big Cro-Magnon hands, it was a little hard to get the balance right on that ball. So I was, I think I was squeezing a little hard, but once I got a, got in the flow of it, it started working a little bit better. But again, you can't compete with a two-time NBA champion in Pompa yeah. Shot. That's just, uh, it's. I'm very flattered that I did that well. Yeah. And... Uh, I would like to honestly say that's the first time I think I've ever played that game sober. So, <laughs> As most of us have not yeah, played sober. I, so I seem to remember a long time ago I was really good at that and was two-handed at left and right-handed, but <laughs> uh, I believe there might have been some kind of inebriation involved. Take me back, though, like when you're growing up, right? Because you mentioned your Cro-Magnon man <laughs> yes, hands. Yes. Like, at what point was this like... <laughs> okay, what am I going to do with myself because I'm such a large human being? Well, it started really early. It's not like I just shot up all of a sudden. I remember turning six years old. I was four foot ten and 101 pounds Whoa. at six years old. And I remember my sister at the time made fun of me. I mean, you could see my ribs, but I was a very square kid. I had these really wide shoulders. She goes, I don't know why it traumatized me as a kid, but she's like, you're like really square. You've got a square head, square shoulders, and square hands. I'm not square. <laughs> you know, like that was the big thing. I remember being a kid and, and tipping the scales at over 100 pounds, and I think my kindergarten teacher was maybe five foot tall, so I was like looking my kindergarten teacher in the eye. So 6'2 at 12, 6'8 at 14, uh, 7 foot at 17. So, you know, I've always had to deal with that uh being larger than everything else around me kind of thing. And I'm, I'm blessed for it. I mean, it gave me a beautiful career. I can't complain. But you know, the only thing, you, you don't really notice it unless someone points it out because I was a tall kid, but mm -hmm. I just, ne I never felt like I was awkward or anything. I was always taller than LMA classmates. and right. uh, But I just felt normal. And the only time you really notice is when people, freaks like you pointed out, Sedano. Freaks yeah. like me? Yeah, normal sized people. Yeah. I played, uh, <laughs> played high school football. and uh, What position? I, well, it's funny. I played tight end played fullback I did our kickoffs and on defense I was a nose tackle so this we had a small school so we played both ways but I played soccer on a, um, a 14 and 14 through 19 all-star soccer team and I was a goalkeeper at 14 I was 6'8 right. and I was a good goalkeeper so I did our kickoffs and in high school you kick off, and then they form the little wall, and then they try to move down. Well, I was seven foot three thirteen, running a five flat forty in pads. Okay, so this is in like nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. So I hit that little wall wide open, and you know, high school kids are two hundred twenty pounds is a big high school. Yeah, kid. no doubt. 
equipment, kids, arms, elbows, everything went flying everywhere. And I remember uh, a drunk mom came onto the field and had one of those plastic cups full of beer, and she threw it in my face and called me a mongoloid. <laughs> you mongoloid! And I remember I looked at my friend Dre Watermaker and I went, what's a mongoloid? He goes, <laughs> he goes it's not good, man. It's not good. <laughs> but yeah, you don't really notice it until like you're at a playground with other kids playing kickball. Right. You know, and somebody that doesn't know you or doesn't realize it looks like there's this adult out there playing. Like the first girl I ever kissed, I got arrested. No way! I'm serious. You're talking about traumatized. It was a roller skating rink. I was 12. She was 14. My first kiss. And it wasn't anything major. Yeah, it, was right. a, it was a kiss on the lips. I don't even think I got tongue. <laughs> and I remember getting tackled by the uh, roller skate rink rental cop security. And uh, they thought I was some 18-year-old you know, weirdo. Yeah. And they wanted my ID. And I was like, I'm 12. I don't even have a library card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my you know? God. Yeah, so it happens, but, you know, you take the good with the bad. Well, that size in high school, were, were any major colleges after you for football? Uh, there was. I mean, well, I, I didn't play a lot of football. I played as a freshman, and I my thing was basketball, mm -hmm. you know, and and uh, I was always one for going against the grain. I think what everybody wanted me to do, I want to do something different. So for me, even at seven foot 313 in high school, I thought I was graceful. So I liked basketball. I liked the, the uh, you know, Michael Jordan was insane back then. Right. Dominic Wilkins, the human highlight reel, and you'd see all these guys. And that, to me, looked cool. You know, why did you know, pick Why did you pick Wichita State instead of Kentucky or Duke or North or Carolina? Or South Carolina or Clemson. I yeah. actually ran to Coach Ellis uh, traveling a couple weeks ago with a Clemson basketball oh, team. And I had gone to a recruiting visit at Clemson with uh, Eldon Campbell was mm -hmm. going to school wow. there. And, and uh uh, I chose Wichita State because of the coach, Mike Cohen, at the time. Uh, he recruited me out of high school and just uh, – he was just one of those coaches you made a connection with. You know, some coaches would come in, and I just knew right away, this is not the dude for me. And I liked Mike Cohen, and uh, we had a lot of great talent on that Wichita State team. We didn't have a good season, but I know we had six or seven guys that had plus 40 verticals between Claudius Johnson, John Smith, uh, Robert George – those are three guys right off the top of my head that had like 40, 42, and 44-inch verticals. So we had uh, great athletes, Kamayo Alexander, who was a um, uh, great talent. Um, it didn't work out. Right. Yeah, things happen, you know. Um, but in life, like anything, one door closes. Um, if you are uh, keep a good attitude and look for opportunities, uh, another one opens. I mean, I had no idea I was going to become a professional wrestler like I grew up watching with my dad and enjoying Ric Flair. And I used to dunk and strut right. like Rick and go woo. Yeah. I would tell big guys in the paint, like, in order to be the man, you got to beat the man. Like, I mean, yeah, I love it. Looking back now, yeah. I was born to be a pro wrestler. Yeah. But uh, at the time, I had the delusions that I was going to be a graceful basketball player until I got around real basketball players. And I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah, these guys are pretty good. <laughs> these guys are pretty good. I think John Smith was the one that changed my perception on everything, who came into Wichita State as a freshman. I think he was a McDonald's All-American. He was 6'9", 285, 40-something-inch vertical leap, and he ran two miles in like 1236 and stopped and tied his shoe. Wow. Like, And his nickname was Stud. Yeah. And I remember he would play five, 
but he was only 6'9", and I wanted him to, like, work on his game and play four so I could play five. And uh, um, we would fight all the time in practice and elbow each other, and I would step on his feet to rebound because I could outreach him, but I couldn't outjump him. Right. So, I, I mean, I turned into Bill Lambeer <laughs> so fast because I just I didn't have the athletic talent, so I had to fight dirty. I would hold on to his shorts, and, and uh, I remember him catching the ball just outside the baseline and took a power dribble and, and took off on the baseline practice too. And I watched his number on his shorts, and I had to look up at the number on his shorts. Like his knees went by my head when he went by. And it was like, okay, well, yeah. that's another level. Right. You know, so uh, it, was a, it was a humbling experience, but I think basketball transitioned into wrestling very well because a lot of the footwork you need in basketball is also great footwork for wrestling. Interesting. So you might have been a great pro wrestler. Oh yeah, because your footwork would have been great for wrestling. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he does. I'd have been. A, I'd have been a heel though. I wouldn't want to be a, fa- a baby. Well, face. I joked you'd be a jobber actually. A jobber? Oh man, yeah. come on. Yeah. Well, you know it's funny. People make fun of jobbers, but you know I, I probably won ten matches in the past ten years. I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> you know, jobbers get paid too. That's true. That is fair. Yeah. Now let's get into the wrestling aspect of it. Now you know you were the giant. You were the big show. And by the way, Paul White, if you haven't realized, is right. here with us in studio. Um, was there ever any, I guess, I guess, was there any every char- character storylines that were presented to you that you did just because, well, you wanted to break into the business, but you knew, oh my God, this is not what I oh, want to be. There were so many things I did in my career. That's the one thing you have to disassociate with. Um, sometimes you're not going to do stuff that's cool for you or stuff that your friends think are cool. It's what's best for the business. It's what's best for the company. And it's how you conduct yourself doing that. Like when I first came out, I was the son of Andre the Giant, and I was like, "Wow, that's kind of well, that sucks," because <laughs> I'm I'm not Andre. I wasn't. I was way more athletic. Excuse me, I got hiccups, and I didn't want to associate that because there were so many people that loved Andre. Right that I felt like at the time, it really painted me in a horrible corner. Sure, and that's the way wrestling was done back then. In order to get into wrestling, you had to know someone or be related to someone. And by me, quote unquote, being the son of Andre who had passed away, then it was instant recognition to help build the legacy on. I was super uncomfortable with it because I'm not the type of guy that likes to lie to people. And I would have very sincere people, especially in the South, that would come up and I loved your dad so much. Oh, I was like, goodness. my dad, he was a great mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. My dad was a nice guy. But, you know, it, it, that was always tough until you learn it's just, just like anything, it's just show business. And the worst thing you can do is to take something that's presented to you and, and not commit and half-ass it. So whatever it was, whether it was doing that gimmick or doing the impersonations for a while where I did the impersonations or – um, some of the different things we've done over the years that have been comical and funny or super angry. You just take the role and, and get into it and give your best performance that you can because it really doesn't matter. If you can do something that creates a moment for a fan to remember you to make that connection, then you've done your job. Well, I tell You're you not thing. always going to look cool. You're not always going to be the toughest guy in the room. You're not always going to have the greatest comeback in a, uh, in a promo. That's not always going to happen. But what's best is what makes the show work and what helps other talents. Because if it's just about you, then if only you are doing well and no one else will, the company is not going to do well. You have to do this and understand that it's not an ego trip for you. This is a business and this is a, 
our responsibility to go out there and give the fans the absolute best show that you can give them, especially in times when economies are tough and entertainment dollar, people are very judicious on where they spend their entertainment dollar. You have to go out there and make sure, even if there's only 2,000 people that show up, then you make sure those 2,000 people have the best damn show they could ever have. You want to make sure that they tell everybody, yeah, I went to the show and it was amazing. And that's where your pride, what's the line from Pulp Fiction? You might feel a little sting and that's pride messing with you. Yeah. That's where you put your pride in your back pocket. And that's when you become, I think, a better talent and a better asset. Because you can have a career for three or four years if you're just about yourself. Or you can have a career for almost 30 where everyone around you, you help make better or you help enhance them in some way, either their character or the segment for the company. So I got the message early on that it was about longevity and uh, becoming an asset for a brand. One of your best works, because when it first came out, was like, oh, come on, this is not going to work, George Sedano. But uh, you, you definitely pulled it off as you and Floyd Mayweather and the oh, feud. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Floyd's like smaller than George Sedano. Oh, half the Sedano. Even bigger than Floyd Mayweather. Exactly. Yeah. But yet, <laughs> there he is. You two guys are going to square off. And uh, did Floyd actually break your nose because he didn't know what he was doing? No, he did because I told him to. What? Originally, this was supposed to be a tag. It was supposed to be Dave Batista and Rey Mysterio versus Floyd Mayweather and myself. And going into this, just before we started this angle, Dave had torn, uh, I believe, a lat or a tricep, and uh, Mysterio had torn a bicep. So both these guys are injured and out. So then they came to me and were like, hey, would you work with Floyd in a singles? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> this is easy. And uh, Floyd was great. When we... Uh, I, I gotta say, I have nothing but good things to say about Floyd Mayweather. My experiences with him and his team, his uh, his willingness to understand what it takes to promote things in wrestling. He understood the wrestling business, and uh, his attitude on the workouts and stuff like that was great. Uh, the biggest thing was calming him down on a lot of stuff he wanted to do, because like, dude, you're worth half a billion dollars right now. Let's <laughs> let's calm down. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. But when uh, we did that angle, I told him, I said, listen, I'm gonna get on one knee. And I had spent a year doing some boxing. So believe it or not, at that time, I know it sounds crazy, but when you're boxing every day, getting punched in the face isn't that big of a deal. Right. You get used to it. It's Getting punched in the face is only awkward if you've never been punched in the face. If you've been punched in the face a lot, it's not that big a deal. So I told Floyd, I said, listen, break my nose. Don't shove it through the back of my head so I look like I'm from Rocky, yo. <laughs> you know, like I still want to remain remotely as handsome as I can. But uh, you gotta you gotta pop me in the nose and 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 break my nose so that we can get this thing off and running. He was like, "You want me to do what?" I said, "I need you to clip me in the nose and break my nose." I said, "You know, when you just tip the cartilage on the end, it'll bleed. We'll all be good." I said, "But very important. When you do that, please run, because there's going to be about eight to ten seconds. If I get my hands on you, I'll kill you." Because that's just who I am, and I know as soon as I taste blood in the back of my throat, I'm going to need to pull something apart, like your arm or your neck. So just do it and run. <laughs> but why would you be mad if you told him to do it? Because that's just adrenaline. Oh. Yeah. Listen, it's fake, but you know there's still a berserker on the inside. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I know this about myself, so I'm pre-warning. Like I might get mad and clobber the hell out of you, so you're worth half a billion, so please just run, and that'll be good. <laughs> So when he incredible self awareness, by the way, it, it was yes. it was very critical. Yes. So when he did it, I was blown away at how fast he was. Yeah. Because I was used to sparring with other heavyweights and stuff like that, and you know they're fast, especially pro boxers. 
But dude was like grease lightning. Mm-hmm. Like, and then it was like, I, th- I thought he hit me like three times. He hit me like five or six times. It was like, bam, 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 bam. And then he threw a left hook and just tipped the edge of my nose perfectly. And man, that hot blood hit the back of my throat and I came alive. And he took off running and I went after him. And I remember I grabbed somebody that I thought was him. And it wasn't. It was one of the decoys. They had like mallard duck decoys that were dressed just <laughs> like him, same size. So right, right. you know what I mean. Like yeah. they were really smart yeah. on how they planned it out. So uh, and uh, I remember everybody was terrified to get around me. And I remember Shane McMahon, who's a very dear friend, who was absolutely no fear. Shane O'Mac was like, uh, he comes over and he's like, "You okay?" And I remember and it's on camera. I'm tasting the blood. And I went, "Yeah, I'm good." And Shane goes, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And then right away, I knew we were off, and uh, we had a good thing going. And they had to actually call Mayweather to come back to the venue because he jumped in the car and left. Right. Like, what you, well, he, you told him to run. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean leave the building. Give me a little bit to get my senses back together. And uh, he came in, the, came in Vince's office, and he was like, are you okay? I'm like, dude, we are golding. Yeah. This is great, yeah. great business. And and uh, I had a lot of fun with him. That was great. That was my first solo main eventing. Uh, one of the at the time one of the company's biggest pay per views. So I'm super proud to do it all. The only thing it was is after our match at WrestleMania, uh, Floyd's grandma uh, had me in the corner at the uh, VIP tent where all the friends and family were, and she chewed my ass out for touching her grandbaby. <laughs> like Floyd had to come over and save me because Big Mama had me in the corner yeah. was giving me the. The right act. Yeah, the what for pretty quick. I was pretty sure she was about to break my nose for me again, too. So she was pretty mad. I'm a, I'm a big fan of all you guys. You know, I'm a wrestling addict, uh, Paul. But uh, obviously my guy growing up and in my adulthood is Ric Flair. Yeah. I mean, to me. Me, too. To he me, was my it, it, too. it actually makes me mad, George, when they say John Cena is the greatest champion or the greatest wrestler of all time. Because no. I said, come on, man. You, nobody can replace well, Ric Flair. But I don't um, know how you feel about it. But what's it like working with Rick and what's he like? Rick is amazing. Uh, my first night working with Ric Flair, I had flown into some small town somewhere, and I remember coming down the, the stairs of the escalator going to baggage claim, and Flair's already there. He's got his bag, and he's got his robe and a, like a suit carry bag over his arm. And he looks at me and goes, what kind of car did you get, Tadpole? Because I was green. I hadn't been in the business very long. Yeah. I said, I've got a Cadillac DeVille. He says, I'm with you. And in my mind, I'm like, holy crap, Ric Flair's riding with me. Okay. So I ride with Ric Flair. We go to the show. I end up wrestling Rick that night, which I didn't know I was wrestling him. You know, he says to me, he says, all right, kid, here's the rules. Sell your nuts, sell your eyes, see you out there. And that's all he told me about the match. <laughs> so sell your nuts, sell your eyes. That's That was it. Yeah. What, does that mean? what does that mean? That means if he pokes me in the eyes, sell it. Yeah. If he kicks me in the oh, yeah. sell it. <laughs> Other than that, yeah. don't sell anything outside duty. Yeah. And uh, then after that match, uh, we were in the car, and I thought we were going to go get something to eat because I was hungry. And then he had plans at a at a bar, and we closed the bar down. And I'm pretty sure I wound up. Thank God there weren't cell phone cameras then, but I'm pretty sure I wound up on a stage in my underwear, hammered by the end of that night. <laughs> to the next week, when I got to to uh, Nitro, uh, some of the executives pulled me aside and told me I wasn't allowed to travel with Ric Flair anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bad influence. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. Yeah, ask Rick that story. He dies laughing. He's like, they wouldn't let me hang out with the kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Rick was awesome. Who was the guy that you worked with the most that you enjoyed working with the most? Like, John all, Cena. I, who's that? John Cena. Oh well, there you go. That's why you may have you took exception. To <laughs> I it, took Mike exception to it because uh, they're they're different. They're different types of wrestlers. To compare the two, they're completely different. But I look at someone that um, did so much for our company, did so much for the other talent around him, and that did so much for me personally. Um, I never, John and I talked about what we were going to do in a match maybe twice in the entire times that we worked together. He went out and was John Cena. I went out and, and did my character. And whatever the finish was they wanted, we did. And the rest of it was two guys that just worked hard and respect each other. And I fought him all over the world, from Beijing, China, to South Africa, Australia, everywhere. So for me, as a talent and a co-worker, like you, you knew you were going to uh, make money working with him. You knew it was going to be safe. You knew the guy was going to treat your character with a lot of respect. And there wasn't, there was going to be zero drama and absolute professionalism. So... When I look back and say who I had the most fun with and, and uh, was the uh, most pleasurable to work with, it was definitely John. Now, guys that pushed me to the next limit, Undertaker used to give me anxiety because <laughs> Undertaker was like a mentor. Yeah. And he was – it was so important for me for so many years to earn his respect that I was just a wound-up ball of nerves wrestling Undertaker. Um as far as guys that I've gone there and duked it out with, Brock and Sheamus, you know, I used to wrestle Brock every night for over a year and a half, like four nights a week. I was wrestling Brock. I used to call him Hammer because he was like wrestling a hammer. Yeah. You know, Sheamus um, was one of the feuds towards the end of my career there that we had a great feud. And I remember sitting on my bus. I did the Madden thing for a while where I had my own tour, but I would fly in, but I didn't rent cars or stay in hotels. I had my own bus. I remember sitting on my bus and I'm covered in all these yellow, green, purple bruises, like my legs, my stomach, my chest, my arms. And I'm sitting there looking at myself going, is there something wrong with my liver? Yeah. Like, what, the, what the hell's wrong with me? Then I go back and watch the tape from the night before where it's Seamus just beating the bejesus out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realize, oh yeah, I'm beating the bejesus out of him too. Cause like his chest is all scarred up and he's got bruises all over and, um, it was just a good. Uh, it was a good fight with Sheamus, and I, I, I respected that and had a good time. With I always say I want to take a chair shot. Does a chair shot hurt? It sucks. Really, it does hurt. It sucks. Yeah, it's a flat piece of steel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not one of those kind of things. that's like I mean, if it hits in the head, it give you a concussion mm -hmm. and and all that. But it's a very sudden, wide whack to the back that if you don't know how to breathe or hold your breath mm -hmm. or keep your lungs expanded, um, yeah, it sucks. And chair shots, you will feel. Two or three days later. Wow. You know, that just, you know, that's part of the deal. I think one night I got hit with like 35 chair shots from Brock. Ooh, one night. Yeah. In one night. In one night. Yeah. Wow. Like Brock had come back and he needed to, we needed to have his character set a, a tone on his return kind of thing. And I was the sacrificial guinea pig, you know, and at one point I'm just like, you know, if I could kick this guy's ass, I would get up and do it right now. <laughs> Considering who it is, I think I'll just take the paycheck and take the chair shots. Do you get extra for taking – do they compensate you for taking that much pain? <laughs> it's a um, – uh, yes and no. Mm -hmm. Yes and no. I mean, there are times where your work ethic is appreciated, I think, and, and it's reciprocated accordingly. And there are some times where you think you worked a lot harder and – 
and it's not what you think it is. But overall, over my career, I have zero complaints, and it always balanced out. How committed are the cons to AEW? Uh, cons to AEW? Yeah. Um, just right now, we're just young. Yeah. We're just young. We're filling a lot of spaces. There's a lot of key personnel that um, we don't have filled yet in in some of the corporate aspect of it. The company is still growing. This company has grown so fast, so quickly. And you've got people doing multiple jobs that have never done these jobs before. And they're learning as they go, and they're doing a great job. But we're also finding experienced people to put in those positions to help. Um, the, the most attractive thing about AEW, if I would say the positive thing, because I'd rather focus on positive stuff than negative stuff, is the authenticity of the product. You know, where I came from before, it was a very structured system that was run. Um, this is how you... This is how you tour. This is your promos. There's 18 to 20 writers backstage. Somebody will hand you a promo. This is what the company wants for you to say tonight. This is how you should say it. This is where you should stand. Um, it's very organized. And when you're running a giant machine like that place was, it works. Um, some of the authenticity that I enjoy from pro wrestling back in the day when I was a fan, the old Ric Flair promo. Nobody wrote Ric Flair promo. Back yeah, then. oh, I know. That was Ric Flair. Yeah, you know? he was the best. You know, you know um, all those guys, Tommy Wildfire Rich or Arn Anderson or Ronnie yeah. Garvin, Sting, none of that always came from an authentic place in their own heart in the way they said it. So that's the thing about AEW that resonates more authentic with me is, is these young gals and guys are going out there when they have promo time and they have match time, and it's literally them putting their idea, their character forward. Tony gives them a platform. Tony Khan gives them a platform and gives them opportunity. And uh, he's positively reinforcing them to go out and do their best, to go out and make mistakes. And it's okay if you do. We're all going to learn from it. We're all going to grow from it. And I think that's a great conducive environment for especially a company like ours that's growing. Um, It's a great place for the talent to be. Plus, now there's a viable alternative to the big machine. Because before, when there's only one game in town, it's tough. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You competition know? is good. Competition is great for everyone. Yeah. And, and, and it's good for talent. It's good for both companies because well, everybody will piggyback and steal stuff from each other and ideas and concepts. And talent can float back and forth, which is a great time for the fans because now the fans have options. You may be more interested in this storyline or you may be more interested in this feud. Could be on a different company. And now with so many ways for – for fans to watch uh, their particular flavor or whatever they're in the mood for. I mean, it's great for everyone. And, of course, you guys are going to be in town here in the Southland, here in Southern California, Wednesday the 15th at the Toyota Arena in Ontario, and then Friday at the Kia Forum here in Inglewood, here in L.A. So make sure you get your tickets, get yourself set up, make sure you watch it all with AEW. Um, And I want to ask you a little bit more about AEW. We did trigger something in my mind about – kind of those wrestling wars from back in the day. Sure. And to your point, I remember specifically, I'm sure you, Michael, now you were you might have been playing, well, you were done playing at that time, mm-hmm. but I was flipping back and forth constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, for you guys in that era, I mean, you were, you were at both places, right? Like, what was that era like? Because you're talking about a time, and I don't think young people realize this, where if you combine the ratings for WCW and WWE at that time. WWF at the time. Well, WWF at the time, but I'm saying they're yeah. now WWE. It was beating Monday Night Football yep. when you combine yep. the two numbers mm-hmm. together. Well, that's the thing, too. Like, that's the thing that's come up, too. People have talked about, oh, and, you know, the attitude was there, was better, the ratings were better. No, it was just done differently. There weren't as many platforms to view our product. Back then, you know, you had to, there wasn't even DVRs. Yeah. 
you had to have one television set had the other show on. You had a VCR running to record it. Uh, you would flip back and forth. Those are interesting times because we had a direct correlation every week on what we did minute to minute when the show dipped in ratings. You always wanted to make sure that your segment time in that uh, in that uh, flow chart when it came out, you want to make sure that the amount of time that you were in the ring, the ratings did not go down. They either stayed the same or they went up. If they went up, odds are you were going to be involved in the programming and doing well. And it was also a good indication of what you did, how it resonated with the fans. Now there's some barometers with social media. You can kind of get a, a feel if something's really good. Boom, the tweets blow out. Like, okay, that resonated good. But at the same time, uh, it's different now. I mean, there's so many forms of entertainment now. There's so many distractions with streaming services and all these things. It's hard to captivate an audience, whereas back in the day, in the Attitude Era, we could. And there's ratings that even blow away bigger than the Attitude Era back in the 50s and 60s right. when there was like one channel, right. three channels. Sometimes some of those wrestling, like everybody in the country would be watching a particular wrestling program or something, you know. So the ratings are all different, and the, the audience changes and the product changes. And the thing is, is just try to continue to go out there and give them something different to watch and, and try to get them involved. Well, can you do my partner who's not here, uh, Michael's here with me, thankfully, but Cappy, who would, he wants to, one day he, he, we had Jericho on, he told him he wanted to be his manager, <laughs> and Jericho called him, you couldn't be my manager, you're a radio hack, you're a crumb of a nacho. Um, wow. Can, can you can you choke slam Jericho for my partner, Cappy, or no? No, that well, partner. here's the thing. No, I know, but you turn on him, is what I'm saying. <laughs> here's my thing, Jericho. Jericho's probably one of my oldest friends in this business. I love him. I, the Y2J character to me was like the biggest thing I'd ever seen in and my for time. For 14 years in Tampa, he was my next door neighbor. No way. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so. We love him. We've had him on what, twice, right? Yeah. We've had him on odds twice. Odds of yeah. me turning on Chris Jericho are slim to none. Mm. <laughs> so, Cappy, you're out of gas. Cappy, you're, yeah, you're out of luck, buddy. You know, you can wish in one hand, spit in the other, and see which one fills up first. All right. <laughs> well, listen, I tried, Cappy. But, you know, Paul is a man of integrity, um, as we knew that. Paul White, legend, joining us here on Sedano and Cap with Michael hanging out today. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by, man. Appreciate it. For those that want to check out the shows again Wednesday, uh, the 15th, Toyota Arena in Ontario, and then Friday at the Kia Forum in Inglewood. You're the best, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much time. And, Michael, it's an honor and pleasure to be oh, on the show with you. Thank you, sir. Big my fan. pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Lindsay. All right, we'll be back in a minute.